No, what happened in chapter 31 was not a surprise to God. In fact, God had said just a few chapters earlier to Saul, Saul, here's what's going to happen. You're going to die, your sons are going to die, and you're going to lose the battle tomorrow in Mount Gilboa. So what, this was the expression, the execution of God's judgment on Saul for rejecting God's word. So God was not surprised. Chapter 31 is not so much about Philistine strength, but about Saul's rebellion and God's judgment then executed on Saul. And so it's important that as we see in chapter 31, uh, that it wasn't a surprise that as, as the author or as the reader is going through 1 Samuel, we get to 31, we should feel sadness, but we should not be surprised. We saw earlier in chapter 15 that God had said, Saul, I'm taking the kingdom from you. And then chapter 28, him saying directly, you're going to lose this battle and you will die. And so we get to 31 and we go, that's exactly what happened. Now it's incredibly detailed. Um, it's, it, the author just jumps right into it in verse one. And as we read through it, there is the tendency, if we just read it by itself, that that chapter feels hopeless. Goodness, the king is dead. His sons are dead. The army is defeated, the kingdom is divided, and the Philistine conquest is beginning. The very first king of Israel is now slaughtered. What is going to happen? But it's important to remember in the back of our minds that even in the midst of this most dire of circumstances, and the bleakest circumstance in Israel's history perhaps so far, that God's word still remained true and faithful in that moment. God had not left his people. God still had a plan for his people. In fact, this was exactly the, the plan that God was orchestrating, that over in the Philistine territory, there's this little shepherd boy named David that God said that there is no army strong enough against my word. And I have not left my people and my word still remains. And so even though judgment is executed and we see then uh, so many people are slain, we see the army uh, lose this battle, God continues to be with his people, and God's word has not failed. There is no strength of an army. There is no king. There is no president. There is no Supreme Court majority that can overrule God's word, that can nullify God's word. And it's important that we make sure that as his people, we put our ultimate hope in him and what he is doing and not in things of this world. Because friends, kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall, but he is faithful through it all. And so we rest in his word as we see a nation falling apart. God is still faithful. He is still true and his word still remains. Because I can tell you in 10,000 years, America will be a footnote in history. Everything in this world that we put our hope in will be gone. Your job, your family, your bank account, your friends, your political party, but there will still be one thing that remains 10,000 years from now is God's word. That though the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of our God remains forever. And so we rest in that reality as we see in chapter 31 that though the circumstance looks like it's taken a turn, God's word remains. He is still in the story and he has not left. Second, we see then lies exposed. Lies exposed. And so we get to this interesting story where this guy then shows up on the scene to David and tells him the news. It's like, David, here's what happened. Uh, I, I had to actually kill Saul because he asked me to. 
Right? He was lying there wounded, and, and, he, and as he's telling it, it sounds almost like a movie. You can feel the suspense building, right? In chapter uh, 1, verse 6, he says, I just happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there just happened to be Saul as he was leaning on that sp- spear. And at that very moment, the chariots and the cavalry were closing in around him. The, the Philistine army was slowly getting closer, and, and Saul turned to me in desperation, David. I had nothing that I could do, and he asked me to be able to kill him, and so I did what he asked me so that they wouldn't be able to then take him and torture him. I, I just did what he told me to do. And here, here's his crown, here's his armband. Now, if, if I was reading through it, you heard there's two different accounts there. What he said happened, and then what the author wrote in chapter 31. You go, those are, those are two different stories. What the Amalekite has said and what the author of scripture has said. So listen, whenever you come to a situation in your life and you're trying to figure out, is what the Amalekite said true or the author of scripture said true, always go with the author of scripture. Right, have you ever met an Amalekite that you could trust? I haven't. <laughs> and so the, we see then that perhaps there was another motive this Amalekite had as he was there in the background seeing this battle take place. He sees an opportunity to perhaps advance his social standing, maybe gain favor with the new king of Israel, maybe secure a place in his kind of regime as he comes as the, the hero. And so he fabricates a few details And he comes then to David to be able to come. Because listen, it's an 80-mile jaunt from Mount Gilboa to Ziklag. So it's not like this guy just wandered into David. He had a particular purpose in mind. He thought that here maybe, as a resident alien in Israel, here was a chance for me to increase my status. I can come be the hero of this battle. But little does he know that the words that he says to try to increase his status will be used against him to take his life. Because David continues to operate as David always had, right? There was twice that David had the opportunity to kill Saul in 1 Samuel. And both times, what constrained him? The thing that kept it back is he said, no, God has anointed him and I cannot raise my hand against God's anointed. Yes, he's trying to kill me. And I know that God has promised for me to be king, but this is not the way. In God's kingdom, David always operated by God's principles, And it's important that we understand that, that we do not take the means to try to justify the ends, the ends to try to justify the means. Whatever the expression is, you know it. (laughs) And we cannot do it in God's kingdom. And so here this man comes and said, hey, I killed God's king. And David said, well, you did the exact thing that you weren't supposed to do. And the irony is that it didn't even happen. But it's his word then that gets exposed, that even though man doesn't see it, God knew exactly what had happened. And that which was done in the dark was brought to light, as it always is. And those lies were exposed. And David then kills him, right? Because he says his reasoning in verse 16, from your own mouth, you testified by saying, I killed the Lord's anointed. So David turns and he then exposes that lie. And so we see judgment executed. We see lies exposed. And finally, we see grief expressed. Verses 17 through 27. It says then that David sang the following lament, a song of sorrow, in which he wrote these words, this, this song, this music to express the emotion that he was walking through in that moment. 
and we see his grief then put forward. So a quick note before jumping in, what some people may do with things like this is try to uh, psychologize the text, and we try to take Western notions of grief or psychology and read it back into the text. Listen, we can't do that. And the other thing I'm not going to try to do is try to flatten everyone's experience. Because one of the things that I've learned through my life and with talking with people is that grief is not the same for everybody. It is very, very different. So to just kind of blanket statement, everyone's experience is the same as grief, friends, does an injustice to what every person's experience is. There's differences, there's nuances, there's different peaks and valleys to every person's experience. And so I don't want to walk through and just go, well, here are the four ways to deal with grief from 2 Samuel 1. That's not David's intent, and that's not my intent this morning either. But there are a few things that we can pull from it, kind of general principles, as we walk through that can give us some guidance as we walk through pain and grief in this world. Because the precursor that I will give, and I've said this before, um, quoting one of my favorite New Testament uh, theologians, D.A. Carson, he said, if you haven't experienced suffering yet in this world, it's just because you haven't lived long enough. You're going to walk through pain and sorrow in this world. You will experience tragedy. Some of you already have greater tragedy than I can even fathom. There are people here this morning that have walked through cancer. There are people here this morning that have had some of their best friends murdered. There are people here this morning that have had to bury their fathers in the last few months. There are people here this morning who have lost their children. Friends, we have walked through the brokenness of this world. And there are others here this morning that will have to walk through the brokenness of this world. And so one thing that I feel is a responsibility as a pastor is to make sure we are equipped for when we walk through those moments because they're coming. I don't want us to live as ostriches in which we just bury our heads in the sand and hope it doesn't happen. And then when pain and suffering comes into our life, then we're kind of surprised and don't know how to interact with it. I want us to begin to prepare and think through what has God said to help us for when we walk through those moments, we can be better equipped. And so as we see here, David's grief expressed, there's a few things that we see from it. So first, we see the urgency of grief, the urgency of grief. Look at verses 11 and 12, right? This is right in the middle of this interview with the Amalekite. The Amalekite had just showed up, told him his kind of grand story of how he had killed uh, Saul and saved the day. In verse 11, then David took hold of his clothes and he tore them and all the men with him did the same. They mourned, they wept, they fasted for all those that had died by the sword for Saul, his son, Jonathan, the Lord's people and the house of Israel. So the very first thing that David does when he hears of this news is he goes and he mourns. Right? Then look at the next verse, verse 13. David then comes back to the man and says, hey, where are you from? And then he goes on and says, how is it that you are not afraid to lift your hand and destroy the Lord's anointed? So in the, mental, in the middle of David's interrogation, you see this pause in which David takes the entire evening to mourn and grieve. And there's this urgency that happens. Right? And you can imagine, I would imagine, how awkward it would be for the Amalekites. He just kind of stands there as everyone's just mourning around him. And he's like, well, I, here's the crown and the armband. Are we going to do the thing where you like make me your second in command, anything? But they're just mourning. And he's standing there beside them. And so we see the, the way in which God allows us to be able to grieve and to grieve immediately. When we walk through pain, when you hear that news, friends, it is okay for the very first thing you do to cry. 
and to, to have those around them. You either see, you see the corporate nature then of that grief, right? It wasn't just David. It said they mourned, they wept, they fasted. There was a communal relationship there. And friends, that continues on into the church today, that whenever we walk through pain and suffering within the church, you do not walk through it alone. You walk through it with a family. This is what the New Testament commands. Rejoice with those who rejoice, but also weep with those who weep. We are commanded to kind of communally and corporately to come together in the urgency of grief and to be able to just sit in that for as long as it takes. We don't have to rush people out of it. We just sit in that grief there at the beginning. And so we see the urgency of grief. But second, we see the thoughtfulness of grief. The thoughtfulness of grief. The entire song in verse 19 through 27, I'm not going to go in and kind of uh, go through the song itself, but it struck me at how precise and intentional David was with his grief. So yeah, he, he pulled back and there was this initial kind of guttural emotional response as he mourned and he wept. But then he turns and he takes time. He picks up a pen and he thinks and he writes down the things that he's feeling. And he begins to, with precision, write out the emotions that he's feeling. And so not only then feeling, but also thinking. And in a way in which he can return to it. And so maybe for for some of you, there may be grief that you've walked through, uh, maybe this afternoon, maybe this week, to go home and to write into words, to think through what it is that you felt as you walked through it. What it is that God has spoken to you and how God walked beside you to write it all out, to think, to pray, and to have that that you could come back to. We see the thoughtfulness of grief. Then kind of connected with that, we also see the length of grief, the length of grief. And here's what I mean by that. David's expectation was not that he would just be better the next day or in a week or in a year. David wrote this song and he went and said, hey, you guys all need to learn this, right? Verse 17 and 18, he sang the lament, but then he also ordered uh, that it be taught in the, the song of the bow was the name of the song and it be written in the book of Jashar. We don't have that anymore, um, but David put it in this book to say, hey, make sure it gets in this, make sure it gets reprinted and make sure that we can come back to it because we will have to come back to it. That grief is not something that we just experience at the beginning and then we just get over. Right, I don't know if you've experienced comments like this. You probably haven't heard it directly, but maybe you've heard it about other peace people. Which you go, man, I can't believe just so-and-so can't get over their husband. Goodness, it's been years. I can't believe they haven't gotten over that experience. Wouldn't you think that time would have healed that by now? Friends, that's not the way the Bible talks about grief. David's expectation is that his grief will continue throughout his life, and he's preparing himself for it, writing down these words intentionally and referring to them in the future, knowing that this will not just go away, that that pain, that sorrow, that reminder that his closest friend is now gone will continue to be there. And so know that our, our expectation is not then that we just get over it after the first couple months or the first couple of years, but we know that that pain and that sorrow will continue to be there. It's, it won't just go away. We don't just get used to it. We just learn to live life differently. Right? It's not much different. C.S. Lewis described it as he lost his wife. Uh, he described it as an amp, uh, compared it to someone who lost a limb as an amputee. An arm doesn't grow back, a leg doesn't grow back. You have to learn to live a new life without it. And every now and then there are reminders that remind you that you no longer have that leg, you no longer have that arm. And so you adjust and your life looks different, but it's never the same. 
And so to write down with thoughtfulness, to be able to come back with the understanding that, yes, this will continue in this life. It will not just go away. I'm not supposed to just slap on a smile and just go on. But there is something interesting about the Christian experience that's different. And that's where we see the paradox of grief. And the paradox of grief is this. This is what it's, well, let me first begin with what it's not. The Christian experience with pain and sorrow in this world is not, hey, God's got it all under control. Just smile. It'll be okay. You're an overcomer. You got this. Pull up your bootstraps. Just keep going. It's going to be all right. Just drink coffee out of a coffee mug that says some catchy little Bible verse on it, and it's all going to be okay. That's not the way the Bible talks about how we are to experience grief. You know, we see here both in David, we see throughout the Psalms, and we see in the New Testament that we are expected to be able to enter into it with actual pain. It's going to actually hurt, and it's supposed to. But there is this paradox there, as Paul writes to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 6.10. He said, the Christian experience of grief, though, is one in which we are grieving and yet always rejoicing. And there we see the paradox. That for Christians, there is grief and there is joy intermingled together. As we walk through, we feel the pain of this world. We feel the sorrow of this world. We feel the sting of sin still in this world, the brokenness of sin that has entered in. But we also walk through with joy. We also walk through with hope, with peace, that we are grieving yet always rejoicing that there is this paradox there. And that paradox is there because of what Jesus has done in his life and his death and in his resurrection and the hope of his return. As he's then conquered sin, he's conquered death. He then turns to his disciples. This was, uh, again, the night before he was crucified. He turns to his disciples. As he's about to be crucified, he knows they're going to abandon him. And then he's getting ready to send them out on their mission to take the gospel that he's been preaching to the ends of the earth. And this is the encouragement that he tells them. He says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. Now you also have suffering in this world. So you hear what Jesus is saying. He said, listen, I've told you all of these things because you can have peace in me. There is peace that you can have. But let me just also be straight with you. You're going to have suffering. You're going to have pain. And you're going to experience sorrow. It's going to happen. Jesus is very realistic. So there is, again, teaching out there today that calls itself Christian that will say that suffering, pain, and sorrow are not meant for you as a Christian. That if you walk through, there's the prosperity gospel. If you walk through and you believe in God and you believe in him enough, then he will remove pain from your world. He wants you to be happy, healthy, and wealthy. That's what God's desire is for you. And if you believe enough, then you will not be sick. You will not be poor, but God wants you to have everything that you've ever wanted. Well, I'm always a little hesitant of that until I meet a faith healer who's 300 years old and which he's gone through and he's actually continued to heal himself on and on, but they continue somehow to die just like the rest of us. And we see in the teaching of the New Testament that Jesus says something similar. His expectation for his disciples is suffering. He says it will happen. And we see over and over in the New Testament, the authors are preparing churches for suffering. But when it happens, Jesus says, you can continue to have peace. And then he tells them in John 16, to be courageous. Why? Because I have conquered the world. Jesus says, you're going to experience it. And it's going to hurt. Your life at times will feel like Mount Gilboa. 
and it will feel like the entire plan that you had for your life now lay slaughtered on a hill and you're looking around going what in the world are you doing and Jesus enters in and he whispers to you in that moment be courageous because I have overcome the world you will experience suffering but you will also experience my peace and so as you walk forward yes you will be grieving but yet you can continue to rejoice because I've overcome the world I have taken this on myself and I have defeated your greatest enemy, sin and death. And because of that, you were then uh, entered into that with me and all the things that I have accomplished will be given to you. And my victory is then counted to you and all the pain that you experience will not last forever. And so you can be courageous because I have conquered the world. Right, reminds me of one of my uh, first jobs here in Orlando. I worked at Universal Studios during their Halloween Horror Nights. I was one of their scare actors, otherwise known as a character. Now here's what that means, is that there were different houses around and you were placed in these houses and your job is to scare people. They, people pay money for you to scare them. The human condition, it's interesting. Anyway, and so going through the training, one of the main rules that they would say is they would say, hey, here, you know, here are guidelines, here's things going on. Just make sure, here's one of the main rules, make sure you don't touch the people. You can't touch them. So you can do everything. You can scream. You can do whatever else you want, but you can't touch the people, actually. You can't go and punch them, right? That's not, that's not necessarily how we roll. And so as people would come through, right, you know, I, had, I was Turkish archer number two, the greatest Turkish archer number two that you, this uh, central Florida has ever seen. <laughs> and I would take my sword and I would wave and people were terrified. There's, yeah, anyway, it was, it was excellent, but I couldn't touch them. Now, not everyone knew that, I guess. So people would always kind of pull back or whatnot. But ever since then, as I go, it continues to be scary, but I have that in the back of my head. Okay, they can do a lot to me, but they can't touch me. And I'm able then to walk through with a different kind of courage and I'm still terribly frightened, but still I can walk through with this courage knowing they, they can do a lot of things, but they can't touch me. Friends, in your life as a Christian, as you walk through this world, understand that death can do a lot of things to you, but what it cannot do is it cannot touch you because Jesus Christ has conquered death and he has conquered the grave. And so walk through and we will experience the fright of this world. We will experience the worst that this enemy can throw. But in the back of your mind, walk through knowing with this kind of courage. That's why Jesus says, be courageous because I know that it cannot touch me. Because Jesus allowed it to touch him. And he went through the valley of death so that all those who are in him only walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Friends, those who are in Christ Jesus will never experience that valley. He went through it for us. He stood in front of the truck and took the weight and punishment of our sin for us so that we just stand beside him and we just feel the shadow as it passes. And so that's the paradox that we have, knowing that, yes, we are grieving and we felt the sorrow and the pain of this world, but there is a joy, there is a hope, there is a peace that we have that is secure. And so we can walk forward and be grieving, yet always rejoicing. Right? And this is why Paul writes the church in 1 Thessalonians, and he says something similar. He says, listen, we grieve, but we grieve like those, um, we do not grieve like those who have no hope. So Paul says, yes, there is mourning, there is grieving for the Christian, but it's different from those that don't have any hope. So we can grieve with joy, we can grieve with hope that those things intermingle together. That's the Christian experience of sorrow. Not that we're just supposed to kind of push it all aside and go, hey, Jesus is gonna make everything better, I'm not supposed to feel this. No, we feel the brokenness of sin. We feel the pain of this world, and yet we rest in the victory that Jesus has accomplished on our behalf. 
And that's where we walk through this world as we see the paradox of grief. Now, all of that leads us finally to the end of grief. And this is what, uh, this is one of the things that death and pain and sorrow does in our lives, that God takes it and uses it for us. The enemy uses it to try to crush us, to try to bring us down, but God can continue to take that which is meant for evil and use it for good. Because uh, in my life, I, I, the first 25 years of my life were, were pretty much okay. I didn't really experience anything difficult. One time, um, LSU didn't win a national championship when I was a kid, and I was a fan of LSU at the time, and that was like the worst of it. I went to, you know, had a, a great girlfriend who later I would marry. Um, my life was kind of looking okay. And then uh, graduated from college, was in seminary, was working at America's favorite drive-in, Sonic. Great place. We would like to open a franchise here in Claremont. Let's make it happen. I was working there one day, and um, I got a phone call from a number that I didn't recognize. And I went, oh, that's weird. I'm working. I want to answer my phone. But it was from the area code that I, from my hometown. So I put it back in my pocket, and then right afterwards, it rang again. Different number, same area code. I went, this is weird. This was before telemarketers got your number from the area code that you live in and call all the time. This was before that time. Um, so I thought, this is weird. So I answered it, and I could hear my neighbor on the other end of the line frantic. I said, Caleb, this is Ann. I'm with your mom. We're headed to the hospital. We're behind the ambulance. Your dad was mowing the yard. He had a heart attack, and it doesn't look good. You need to come home. So I rushed home. Uh, throw together stuff into a suitcase, um, heading back out, about to go to the hospital. I get a call from my mom, and she said, Caleb, he didn't make it. He's 59 years old, healthy. We didn't expect anything like this to happen. And then one day he was here, the next day he was gone. And so I get on a plane from North Carolina where I was getting my master's at the time and flew to Texas and then Mississippi and then drove back to Louisiana because airlines. And... Uh, the whole way there, you know, you can't have your phone on for whatever reason. And so I'm sitting there by myself on these flights, 12 hours before I can finally get home. And I've got nothing but God's word with me. And I just begin to thumb through the pages looking for anything. And I just kept reading Romans 8 over and over and over and over again. And there was one verse over and over that I kept coming back to. It was Romans 8, verse 18. Paul writes that I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that's to be revealed to us. I do not consider the sufferings of this present time to be worthy of comparing to the glory that's to be revealed to us. I couldn't move past it. Because what was strange in that moment when I just learned that my father had passed away all of a sudden, what happened for the first time in my life, I began to long for the day for Jesus to come back. Not only to end pain, but to be able to experience just how great that glory would be. Because here's what Paul's saying. Here's what pain and suffering does in our lives. Paul's not saying, the, the Spirit of God through Paul is not saying, hey, just push it to the side and don't feel it. Paul's saying, no, feel it. Feel the brokenness of this world and feel that pain because we can be grieving and yet always rejoicing, but understand the magnitude of that pain that you feel right now is not even worth comparing to the glory that's going to be whenever Jesus Christ comes back. And for the very first time in my life, I had some kind of standard in which I understood how great it was going to be whenever Jesus returned. And for the first time in my life, I couldn't wait for him to come. 
up until that point, honestly, I was like, Jesus, I really want you to come back, but if you could just wait until Mississippi State wins a national championship, which that's not going to happen, but anyway, at least until I get married or have kids. Jesus, just wait until kind of my life runs its course because I'm really excited about my life, and then you can come and do, you know, what you're going to do. But pain and suffering entered into my life. Grief entered into my life. And all of a sudden, what the enemy meant to try to crush me, God used to lift my head and say, just wait for what's coming. What you're experiencing now is not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed. And so the reality, friends, is for those of us in this room here that have suffered the most, that have experienced the greatest pain in this world, you are the ones that have the clearest picture of just how incredible heaven's going to be. And so hold on to it. Because the reality is that there will be a day when Jesus returns and that glory comes and all the grief that we've experienced will end. God is saying, lift your head. Know that this was not the way that it was supposed to be. And there will be a day whenever it will be finished. This is how the Bible ends in Revelation 21, verses 3 through 5. John has this vision of heaven. And at the very end, the second to last book of the Bible, John sees this vision. He says, Then I heard a loud voice coming from the throne. And look, God's dwelling is now with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. And so we see this perfect relationship and presence of God's people now with God. But it doesn't just end there. It moves into this. And this is one of the, one of the pictures of God. We see his great power and we see his great intimacy. As the next verse says this, that God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. God has the ability to wipe away our tears, to wipe away our pain, and the intimacy to do it one by one. He comes and he will wipe it away because, John writes, death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. And then the one seated on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. And John has this picture of the end of grief, that grief will be no more, that there is a day when Jesus returns and that glory will be greater than anything that we can imagine. And all of our pain, all of our suffering, all of our funerals, all of our cancer, all of our heart attacks will be wiped away and we will experience a perfect relationship with God in his presence as he wipes away every single one of our tears and makes everything new. This is the hope that God holds out for his people. And I love how he ends uh, in verse 5 in Revelation 21 as God then turns. So he says all this is the vision that God that John had of God and God closes with his declaration, look, I am making everything new. But then he turns to John and tells him this. He says, go and write this down because these words are faithful and true. So we see this incredible vision of what God will do. And then God turns to John and says, John, make sure, go get a pen. Go get your iPhone, put it in your notes, whatever you've got to do. Go, write this down because these words that you've seen are faithful and true. And we see God being able to tell his people that there will be times in which you walk through sorrow, in which you walk through pain, in which you walk through suffering. And just like David did in the Mount of Gilboa, whenever his world crashed around him and his best friend was murdered and his army lay slain, scattered around a mountain, David walked forward, know, walked forward knowing that God's word remained faithful and God remained true and that his word remained even despite the circumstances. And so in your life, 
whenever that pain comes, whenever that sorrow inevitably enters into your life, walk through it knowing that, yes, this is an incredible weight that we are currently having to walk through. This is a pain that I feel like I can't manage. But let me take the promises that God has given us and the hope that he has said and know that his word remains and that his words are faithful and true. And as I walk through grief in this world, let me hold on and lift my head to the hope that is to come. As we look forward to the end of grief and we remember what our father says and then we remind him of what he says. This is what we do as we walk through. I was uh, hanging out with my two and a half year old the other night. We were swimming in a swimming pool. She loves water right now. She's one of those. And, uh, and so she loves to get in the water. She can't swim. Like, listen, you can't do this because you will die. Let me make sure to be around you. She's also fearless. But anyway, she loves to swim. So we're swimming. We're having a great time. We, we get out to go eat some food. And all she wants to do as we're eating is just go get back in the pool. It's all she wants to do. Daddy, go swimming. Go swimming. Like, Millie, I just got my hamburger. Just chill. All right. Well, a little while. 13 seconds later, Daddy, go swimming. It's like, I, we, just, we just had this conversation. Remember? Remember, just, just, just remember, uh, we said this. I said, not right now. And it just is persistent over and over again. No matter what answer I give her, it's still the same question. Daddy, go swimming? So finally, after about 30 minutes, this, I'm like, Millie, okay, listen, when I'm done eating, we can go back in and swim a little bit, okay? When I'm finished eating, you got that? Got registered, got it? About 13 seconds later, a different question. She then looks at my plate, which currently has no food, and she goes, Daddy, where'd your food go? <laughs> and if nothing else, I had to admire her for her cunning. I went, this is an excellent point, Millie. But notice what she did. She heard the promise of her father. She held on to the promise of her father. And then she reminded the father of his promise. Friends, in our life, as we walk through pain, we need to make sure that we are hearing the promise of our father. If we keep this book closed, then friends, we will not be able to bear what this life will bring towards us. Hear the promise of our Father. Hold on to the promise of our Father. And then remind the Father of what he has said. Friends, may we walk through life in that way, knowing that no matter what comes our way, his word remains and we can hold on to it. As we walk through this life, we can be both sorrowful and yet always rejoicing, grieving and yet always rejoicing, having peace and joy that this world cannot touch because Jesus Christ has conquered the grave. And so this is what we see in 1 Samuel 31 and in 2 Samuel 1. We see death, we see lies, we see sorrow, we see lament. But the undercurrent of it all, we, see, we still see hope. God's word remains. He is still working. He is still going to raise up a king in Israel that will bring forward an even greater king that will one day usher in his kingdom, not into a tiny little territory in the Middle East, but around the entire uh, new heavens and new earth in which his kingdom will then come fully. And this is the hope that we have and the hope that we hold on to that we can be sorrowful and grieving and yet always rejoicing because Jesus Christ is greater than anything that we've experienced in this world. Let's pray.